what's good for you I'm empty hanging and I'm filmed to what I'm gonna dream out there in our wonderful listening community. We welcome you to Three Drinks In, a podcast where nothing happens until that third drink is in our rear view mirror. Because we all know that the third drink in is that magical point where wisdom and truth intersect. Thanks for tuning into this, our 34th episode. Let me just tell you that each episode features a conversation with me, Billy Bob Jumpback Jr., my neighbor Jerry, and every so often the occasional guest. Together, we will explore some arcane avenue of musical minutia, but not before we sample a couple of adult beverages and unwind our collective brain trust. We are happy to welcome our friend Mailman Mick onto our program. Among other things, he is, in no particular order, a writer, a professional musician, a political activist, and a damn good educator. We call him the Mailman because he always delivers. We know you will enjoy his insight into our topic today. Rock music is transformative. It can set us on a path of political resurrection. It can soothe the damaged soul. It can help us move toward righting social injustice. It can anger us. It can celebrate us. It can lift us up. It can tear us down. It is a vehicle which poets have used to help make the world a better place. But it is an art form that is fluid, ever-changing, dynamic. In today's episode, we turn our collective eyes toward those songs on the continuum of rock that have helped move the needle from point A to point B. Thanks for joining us for episode 34, Songs That Changed the Direction of Rock and Roll. Here we go. Well, hey everybody, this is Billy Bob Jumpback Jr. And we are here at the Iowa Tap Room once again, having a great time, drinking a few brews, getting ready for podcast number... 34. I'm here with a couple of people today. We warned you that once in a while we'll have a guest. This is that day. But first of all, I'd like to hear from my buddy. Say hello, neighbor Jerry. Hello, neighbor Jerry. That's neighbor Jerry right there. Neighbor Jerry, we got a friend here with us. And this is a legendary blues rock man. He always delivers. We call him Mailman Mick. And Mailman say, hey, what up? Hey, what up? <laughs> What's going on, man? Glad to have you here. It is a pleasure to be here. So Mailman Mick and I know each other from one teaching connection, and Jerry, my neighbor Jerry and I know each other from a different teaching connection. And as we sit and talk, we find out that we share a lot of things between the three of us anyway. So let's go ahead and move into today's show. We're going to talk about uh, songs that change the direction of rock and roll. I came with 10. Neighbor Jerry, what would you come with? I've got a few more than that, maybe 13 or 14. And uh, Mailman Mick? I have a true dozen. A true dozen, all right. But there's all sorts of things you have to take into consideration here, right? What time period are you talking about, right? What else? Well, I thought when you said changing the direction, I thought of detours and alternate routes. Very good. Um, And so a couple thoughts that came to my mind were what were things that happened in the music changed the direction sure yeah and two things that i'll throw out that kind of so you're uh, talking uh, musically versus uh, lyrically yeah yeah and so harmonies oh and horns now from past experience we know that occasionally you like to hear a band with some horns in it i do all right man man mick what do you think what what are some of the things that you put into criteria for this well i sat down and having gotten this homework assignment from you um I said the first criteria I had was it had to be a song that wasn't just completely obscure, that it had widespread exposure to it, um, and that it, so because of the exposure, it was impactful on a lot of musicians. Second one was what you were talking about, uh, Neighbor Jerry, that it created change in popular music, something, it's a pivot point. Right. And then the third one was that uh, it wasn't music that was necessarily dealing with image or stage behavior, but it was actually um, about uh, a, a, something was altered within the the trend of popular music. Would you say philosophical? Could be philosophical, could, as Just far as artistic. lyrics. Yep, uh, interpretations. Yeah, because there's, I mean, that opens up the whole 
Pandora's box of things that it could be that are exploding out of there. So, well, we each came with a plethora of songs. Anybody got anything else to say before we hop in? I'm, I'm ready to follow your lead. I think you probably got the most to talk about, so why don't you go ahead, neighbor Jerry. What's, what's the first song you want to call out for changing the direction of rock and roll? Well, I mentioned earlier about harmonies. So I'm just going to toss out a couple different groups that okay. would be harmony type groups. Uh, probably starting off with the Everly Brothers. You got to think about them. First. You know, they, they were probably the first harmony group, uh, followed by the Mamas and the Papas. Oh, that's a good uh, one. Yeah, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. You're hitting and the then, harmonies and Eagles. So those are groups. Those are based groups. on their harmonic connections that may or may not have change the direction of rock and roll yes that's kind of cool okay so uh that would be in a span of about 10 years yeah or maybe 12 or so because the everly brothers would have been late 50s early 60s uh eagles up to 72 Um, yeah really what is that 14 years that seems like it's generations but it's but not far at all there's another group that i didn't mention in there that i'll talk about a little more detail later about harmonies but it was just interesting how that impacted music that followed. And and for me, I love those groups that had those harmonies. Because, yeah, that's what I was going to say, because it ends up influencing who you listen to. Who you to. listen to, exactly. Exactly, yeah. So that's just some ideas of people or groups that harmonies were important that I thought had yeah. an influence on the direction. You know anybody else? There's another uh, one that I think stands out in my mind, that's the Hollies. Oh, yeah. Which had such oh, yeah. a tremendous yeah. influence, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Nash. And, 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 and Lennon and McCartney always talked about how the Everly Brothers influenced their harmony and that type of thing. But Paul Simon. But it's kind of interesting that you bring this up, and we'll, we'll flow over this with different songs because... At the time, you know, the Beatles were doing, let's let's be harmonious. Rolling Stones and the Kinks and those guys were like, let's do anything but be harmonious. Not to say they didn't have harmonic qualities in what they were singing. It's just like we're not we're not about the sound of it as much as we are what you need to hear. You know, as far as is it loud and is it proud and you know, is it on the edge? Is it on the edge? Yeah. yeah. And then you know, of course, that goes on for generations and hopefully keeps going. So, all right. So that 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 was. The first couple, right? Well, just some groups. Uh, oh, those are groups. Those so they're just groups. Are that, you getting into follow, song titles? That follow, now? follows into the harmony category for me. But specific, I guess if I work my way through my list of songs. Yeah, let's get that whittled I, down. I would go with some of the early rock and rollers that they didn't necessarily change the direction of rock and roll, but they kind of created it. So I'm just going to throw out a couple here real quick from the 50s. Okay. Elvis Presley and Hound Dog. Yep. Ray Charles and What I Say. Uh, Chuck Berry and Maybelline. Okay. And and then the Everly Brothers, you know, uh, who I mentioned earlier. Sure. When Will I Be Loved and, you know, Wake Up Little Susie, all right. those. I mean, right. the list goes on for them. Yep. So those would be a few of the early founders of rock and roll in my opinion based on the idea of harmonization and things like that that harmony and and just well elvis push rock and roll in a certain direction just yeah they they sent it off on a certain trajectory right that some of the other altered over time which we'll talk more about okay yeah so mick what do you got well you you have one that it didn't make my list but it was one of them that was right there as an alternate and that is you know Anything that Chuck Berry did, I, I listened to a, a conversation with Ray Charles not long ago that uh, from 60 Minutes, and they were talking about the significance of Elvis and and his role, and we'll talk about that a, a little later. But uh, um, you know, it, Chuck Berry, uh, honestly, if Chuck Berry had had been white, oh. uh, he may be the king. Yes, um, yep. easily. Yes, easily. Yeah. And and the songs that were written, the hooks. Yeah. I mean, how do you look much past what his, you know. And, and everything he was doing was from, from the origin. Elvis was a performer. Mm-hmm. Chuck Berry was a performer, but he was a songwriter and a hell of a guitarist. And he innovated mm-hmm. guitar in a lot of different right. ways. So, yeah, if he'd have been white, can you imagine what? And it's not to discredit El- Elvis. No, no, Elvis no, no, had no. a wonderful voice and, and could no. do a lot of things with it. But right. if, if you're talking about the king. I, I look at, uh, like, Chuck Berry and uh, Buddy Holly. Uh, at, at their respective points lives as being somewhat equal. If Buddy Holly would have lived, I think he'd have, he'd have had ben the same right kind of impact. Although, I mean, look at the impact he has 
with the life he lived. But I think I think Buddy Holly was starting to do things that nobody else was doing. So yeah, Chuck Berry. What else you got going there, mailman? Um, okay, well I'm going to go back then since yeah, uh, go ahead. since neighbor Jerry took us into the '50s. I what I I put down. I'm gonna I'm gonna name a song and I'll go with Mr. Presley uh, as far as incredibly important and that's Jailhouse Rock. There you go. Um, and the reason that I picked that I did a little research on on that one and there were, he had. I think a couple earlier ones, right. Hound Dog, um, may have been before Jailhouse Rock. 56 and Jailhouse Rock well, was, was 57. 57. Yep. yep. Um, I picked it because um, Jailhouse Rock is the only song in the history of Billboard that was number one in rock and roll, number one in country, and no- number one in rhythm and blues at oh, the same time. That's wow. incredible. I did not realize that. So, I mean, how do you argue with that? And it's never happened since. No. 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 And so, probably won't. No, definitely won't. That's cool. So that's, uh, what, what did you end up with now? You got rid of number 12? Yeah, that was number, as far as uh, Jailhouse Rock was, I put it as number 12. Okay, so you've got 11 left. You've got how many left, Neighbor Jerry? About 10. All 13, right. 13 counting my top three. Okay, so you keep saying about 10. <laughs> so that's cool. That's, that's the way that should be, and I love it, and... If we do the count right, I think we're going back to Mailman Mick right now. So, Mailman Mick, what do you got on your next one? Okay, my next one, I'm going to go off of something that uh, Neighbor Jerry said. Uh, It's an Eagles song. Oh, cool. And, again, going to the idea of a pivot, a change in in the existing popular rock and roll music, Um, Hotel California is, is the one I pulled out. And because it was... In that moment, December of '76, it was a, it was an affirmation of the sound coming out of, uh, you know, Southern California. Sure. Um, and it was that uh, bridge between Southern rock, yeah, that was... uh, the harmonies that you talked about a little yeah. bit ago, and and there and in it, there's a definite softening. Even though there's tracks on the album, sure, that uh, aren't soft. Um, but it's definite softening of rock, and I think that was something that we're going to see. It wasn't quite what they called, well, I guess it could be soft rock. But it did show up on soft rock radio, wouldn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Several, yeah, several songs off that album would, yeah. Yeah. There so. was lots of orchestration. You get into wasted time and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and things like that. But yeah. uh, you got Joe Walsh on on, on guitar when you're uh, playing. And you know? I believe, was that his first album with him? I think so, yeah. I think so, too, yeah. Yeah, so that's just incredible. That, that's a great album. So that was... I, I said Hotel California was the... I, I felt the, the song from that album that really kind of altered the path of rock at that point in time and established Southern Southern, southern rock, yeah, yep. for what it was. And that's a good way to put it. Because the Beach Boys weren't really Southern rock by any means. They were... They, they gave a sound to California, but that wasn't Southern rock. Bakersfield and Country, that's, that's Merle Haggard, that's Buck Owens. Um, and that's a whole different thing right there, too. So, yeah, really, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash mm-hmm. were a, had been around a little yep. bit. Um, and and Jackson Brown bit. had yep. been around a little bit. And so these guys were all bopping around together. But they hadn't, well, to a certain extent, they hadn't kicked it out quite as far as uh, as what the Eagles did in yeah. Hotel California. Right. Those were all good artists that you mentioned. Right, right, right. But none of them had the success that the Eagles had had. At that point. At that point. Yeah. And, and Hotel California for the Eagles was uh, just another step in. Well, yeah. it was. It's a, a landmark album. Hits. It yeah. is a landmark yes. album, absolutely, yep. mm-hmm. yeah. It was one of those, This is nobody's ever sold more albums than this at this point type thing until, you know, Michael Jackson blew his nose and changed all that. Right. <laughs> So, okay, so that, I think, bounces it back to neighbor Jerry, and then I think we're on even ground, and we'll start working around. So what do you got? I've got for a song that changed the direction, and it may not necessarily be so much just the song, but it was the Beatles. Yeah. In 1964 with I Want to Hold Your Hand, and I think that was their first hit that brought them to the United States and... and we became familiar with their music. Uh-huh. Exactly. Uh, but uh, you think of all the great songs that the Beatles had. One, their, of, the, the, one of their first was sure. was the one that sent them off in that direction. And it, and, it, and it was a British group for the United yeah. States people. So that was a change. Yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind, too, um, that the Beatles 
had kind of adopted. I mean, they they were they held in awe all these American rockers. We were, I was just talking about this with my family last night. How come you know some of these guys don't have accents when they sing? And I'm like, well, and I just read this recently was that a lot of them claim it's because they were listening to American blues artists, American rock, uh, early rock artists on the radio. That's what they all gravitated to, and so they'd imitate them, and that's how they'd learn how to play their songs and. Their voices became the voices of the people they were imitating. And so, like, when you talk to Mick Jagger, he talks like Mick Jagger. You know, I'm Mick Jagger. Yeah. But when he sings, he sings like, I don't know, Al- Arthur Alexander, you know, somebody like that. But, I and, and I had actually a, a linguist uh, from Harvard came and, and uh, did some research in my school a number of years ago. Yeah, you might have just, you just might have highbrowed this show a little bit more than it needed to be. <laughs> but keep going. <laughs> Okay, and when we, we got to Ivy talking about school. this, exactly what you're talking about, we got to talking about the idea of why were the British artists, you know, one, they were the early adopters. It was okay for them to adopt black music and bring right, blues right. back yes. to the United yeah, States. Yeah, because it was okay there. Yeah. And the, the other thing was is that when they sang, when they sang, their, their voices were clearer on the radio, and it was easier to understand okay. what they were saying. Yeah. And I, I, we talked about that phenomenon. She said it was a huge factor in why, I mean, not only obviously did they write great music, right. but they covered a lot of stuff. I mean, look at the Beatles a early. Covered they covered tons a ton and tons of stuff. of stuff, yeah. Well, so that was one of mine with the Beatles. So oh, yeah, okay. Back to you. Uh, so number 10 coming in, uh, 1982, The Message, a song by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Is anybody crossing anybody off here? Nope, that's not on mine. <laughs> so Grandmaster Flash. Uh, Interestingly was, enough, though, my next one is is a rap song so um it was like the first dominant rap group was grandmaster flash in terms of they were getting more airplay than anybody else they write about how the song was one of the first to uh, really kind of create a scene of what the inner city looked like as they were as they were going through their lyrics this this whole band was a huge influence on jay-z on lil wayne nwa and it even it even pushed its way up into the anger rock uh, in terms of influence influencing rage against the machine i know that's one of mailman mix favorite groups <laughs> it just created a new storytelling outlet this whole thing this called rap that had been probably happening around the city a long time but it didn't get to the monetary markets until then so that's my number 10. i i heard an interview one time with yoko ono and uh they asked her, what kind of music do you think John Lennon would be listening to today? Um, and she, she said, oh, without a doubt, I think his favorite would be rap. And this interview probably occurred maybe 15 to 17 years ago wow. with her. And, um, and I thought that was, like, that really caught my attention. And I remember kind of whipping around. Oh, going, I could see that being something that would freak him out and just interest him until he got really good yes. at it. Yes, and, and she, she said, because the lyrics were so important to him, yeah, and those lyrics are incredibly important, yeah. and that was the connect. She felt that would be his connection. Uh, the, the biggest problem for me is that, the, and that's because it's a cultural thing. I just don't pull the lyrics out in time to appreciate the song as I'm listening to that kind of thing I until until that. my kids tell me listen to it again and listen to it again. You know that yeah. kind of thing. And, well, you got to understand the slang that's being used. Yeah, there's too. that's good, yeah. it's a good part of that. You know because. I'm in my late 20s, early 30s now, and it's getting a little bit harder to understand some of that stuff. Have another hey, sip, hey, hey, hey. Billy Bob. All right, so that Billy. was my 10. Where are we at? Let's go around to you then, uh, um, neighbor Jerry. Okay, back to me. So, uh, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Oh, okay. From 1971. And how did that influence, or how did that change things? It brought a lot more soulfulness to the music. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, Marvin Gaye was one of those guys that, was early on recognized uh, as a broader appeal. Yeah. And, and so I think that helped. Yeah. But um, He was hitting a lot younger audience than a lot of the other Motown people were, I think. And, and there were others before him. Sure. But I think uh, his style was just such that it had a broader appeal. Yeah. And, okay. and Barry Gordy just threw a fit. He said, I can't put this album out you know I right mean, exactly when you when you study the lyrics that the, particular you know, song yeah yeah, yeah he says oh, the whole like, album that was yeah. it was a yeah, radical album. album it was yeah, a, right. it was an it, album it, chain it was a it, cultural it, change so it, yeah i mean the pivot on that too for me is that here is 
you know, here's a war where disproportionately African-American yeah. men are being drafted <laughs> and going into the most dangerous areas. And this guy's writing, writing an album that's yeah. questioning this. And it's, Barry, it's, and Barry Gordy was there to sell records. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, not to make to, political but statements. To, but to his credit, he said, he put it out. you go ahead and do it. Yep. Yeah. He put it yeah. out. Yeah. Right. And that, and that is, that's an interesting way to put it. That is a cultural change because that, in, in one of our other episodes, we talked about protest songs. And this is a very important, and it wasn't the first protest song by a long ways, but it was uh, maybe one of the, the first that was culturally accepted by different races, blacks, whites, what have you, um, instead of just being one that appealed to a certain fraction of the country. It kind of crossed a lot of boundaries, I think. So we better move on, though. So Mailman Mick, what do you got next? Okay, well, my next one is in July of 1986, Walk This Way, the, the remake, Run DMC. Run DMC's version. And Aerosmith. <laughs> um, and the reason, kind of basically, that I picked it is that this is where, as you were talking about, uh, Grandmaster Flash right. and, and uh, the message and so on, uh, and the Sugar Hill Gang, uh, you know. Which, who's, that's who I thought I would be talking about, but as I started researching, I found out they were heavily influenced by Grant, what Grandmaster Flash did just a little bit earlier. There's the pivot. And, uh, and I, I chose that because not only did it, it obviously regenerate Aerosmith's uh, work and, and brought them into the yeah. 90s and they became one of the big bands of the 90s, yep. um, but it really altered uh, the path of from it being strictly, from raps being strictly an urban African-American, um, you know, probably uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged position to suddenly right. here it is main mainstream but it yeah. still has an edge oh and a, so it was all edge i yeah. think yeah that was that was some good stuff too you know and then you know you bounce from that into the beastie boys and boom now we're talking changing, yeah. everything's changing because that rap stuff's all of a sudden white boys are doing it? well maybe i can listen to it you know it's like and it's and if you and if you think back to the video that they made the that ran 10 million times on on mtv one of the scenes is uh, Steven Tyler breaking Steven Tyler breaking through the wall. Oh yeah, right. You know, and so it's 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 a non-subtle way of saying, all right, look, mm-hmm. music's supposed to unite; it's not supposed to divide. God bless Steven Tyler. Mm-hmm. All right, I think it's me. Yep, I think you're right. All right, so we talked about number ten for me. Moving down to number set, number nine, excuse me. And as I look at this again, I, I realize now what I'm doing is I'm working through genres more than I am timelines. So the genre I'm talking about now happens to match up timeline-wise if I'm going recent to furthest away. Black Sabbath, the album, the song, 1970. It was like the, according to very many people who research this a lot, it was the first heavy metal song. That's five people over here saying that, and the other five people on the other side of the room are saying, no, it's not. But anyway, it's, it's one of the first heavy metal songs. This one uh, came in with a lot of critic support on it. Uh, they like to point to this song. They like to talk about older ones like Born to be Wild, like Helter Skelter by the Beatles, Whole Lot of Love, uh, Zeppelin, and stuff like that. But this one really did take it to a this is what we're going to do all the time level. And so, yeah, Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. Song, album, group. Moving on. So I follow that up with from the year of 1965 and a song by the Rolling Stones which sure uh, I've heard of them I can't get no satisfaction I think that was probably their first hit here in the US and it was part of that British invasion sure and I don't know that it altered or changed the direction but it was just another influence coming from Europe that influenced the American scene yeah and, and, and still does I'm fairly sure that was the first hard that that was the antithesis of the of hard the, rock of the Beatles, so I mean those were the first two groups that came across the pond. Yeah, Beatles were always dressed up nice and presented nice, and then the Stones were and the Stones rough, were marketed, marketed a different way. Yes, right, yes, yes. completely marketed yeah. a different way. Gentlemen versus and the guys in the band loved it. <laughs> yes, and because of that, they are they are co-equals on the same ground. But yeah, I would say that song probably launched. Uh, thousands of garage bands. Oh, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that would be in 1965, and kids are, you know, yeah. the the war is just kind of becoming a yeah. thing, and they're yeah. paying attention, and 
and I want a little bit. I want to be a little scary, and I'm watching the Stones. And it's yeah, like, there you okay, go. Okay, I want to scare. Well, that that was the rebellion group. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, and they had an example to follow of, of oh. what it looks like. Yeah. So that would be mine. So yeah, back your, to mailman. And mail. you might be on your number eight. I'm hoping. Uh, I'm thinking number nine. Okay, we'll do that one and okay. move along. Uh, March 1971. I got to mention the album because it was incredibly difficult for me to say this is the song because the album is in and of itself so important. It's live at Fillmore East. The oh, Allman Brothers. Oh, and, great choice. Yeah, and I I went through a lot of different thing and th- things and thought about it, and it's like probably Whipping Post. Whipping Post, it's, yeah. It's maybe the the iconic, but everything on that album is iconic. So it, in my mind, it's the greatest live album ever recorded. And, I think so. Um, and it, it was really the birth of Southern Rock. The, the, there's a lot of conversation, Derek and the Dominoes, with Layla oh, being yeah, potentially the, you know, the birth of... But yeah. I, I think, I think this is Fillmore the East I, is it. You yeah. know, I, I, think, and I agree. To, to insert... Well, the Southern influence is always in all of the music we're talking about, but... You, you can't really... Uh, it, was, Layla, it was unique and of itself. Layla cancels itself out just by virtue of the fact that they bring in Dwayne Allman to make it a better song. Right, exactly. So, that, I mean, that goes back to Allman Brothers first, and then these people second, so... Very cool. I, oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite albums. Who who wrote Whipping Post? That's what I'm wondering. I know it was probably an old blues song that I got brought up. And I think I've heard that's it before. I don't think it was T-Bone Walker, but it was that... That era, but anyway, that's a that's a good thing. It's me again. I believe it's you again. You. Me again. Okay. Well, I'm I'm down to 1968, and one of my favorite bands, the band, and the weight is the song that I think changed the direction of rock and roll at that time because it really flew in the face of the uh, some of the new recording practices where they did a lot of instrumental overdubbing and stuff like that. Uh, I'm I'm going to use Sgt. Pepper's as my example because that was one of the First, but anyway, Sergeant Pepper's was with the psychedelic music and and a lot, a lot, a lot of overdubbing and, and different kind of engineering techniques. This album came out pretty much a year later, something like that. It wasn't within the, within a couple of years, um, and and it kind of revolutionized rock and roll in the sense that oh, George Harrison hears this and he says, "I want to simplify what we're doing." Uh, Eric Clapton hears this and says, I'm going to quit Cream because I want to do that kind of music. And that's where Layla and Derek and the Dominoes came from. He actually asked them if he could join the band. (laughs) No, we don't have any openings right now. But uh, and, and Harrison imagine that there. turning Eric Clapton oh, down sorry, from band. Bud, can't find yeah. any room for you. <laughs> we, you probably could you could work you in, but geez, I don't know if we could pay you. you know? <laughs> um, it really just it showed a new pathway uh, for I guess for artists to return back to what had really significantly influenced them in the beginning and and what they wanted to uh, get back to. I, I choose the weight because that's the most recognized song from the from their very first album. Does Levon Helm, Big Pink. he sing lead on that? Yeah. Okay. And aren't there some good harmonies well, uh, on that song? So Yeah, there are some good harmonies, you bet. So so it's Levon and uh, Rick Danko sing together. Richard Manuel's doing the harmony in the background, but yeah. So that's my number eight. Moving on, neighbor Jerry. So back over to me then. So I think. Uh, I'm still stuck in the 60s. I'm going to go with The Doors and Light My Fire. So you mentioned The Doors shortly after. Mailman Mick talked about influence in logic garage bands because the Doors are probably considered the best garage band that ever played. <laughs> yeah. and, and and that's not necessarily a knock on them. It's just but it, sometimes it's a little brother thing. No, well, I, I I saw something on a documentary. I'm going to steal it here, but it, but what they were saying, the Doors are after dark. Like the, a lot of the other music was before the sun went down, but the Doors were after dark. Oh, that's a good and way to put it. There's, there's a scary there's a scary yeah. element to the. To the yeah. music and, and oh, yeah. uh, you and, know, I thought that Jim was Jim Morrison, the further and further he got away from what we consider reality, I think that became darker and darker and, and darker. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Very good. Okay, Mailman Mitt. Okay, August of 63. So we're going early, but the influence of, of this group can't be underestimated because it rang in the ears of McCartney and Lennon, who, yeah. of course, are two of the most influential songwriters in, in history. But it's "Be My Little Baby" by the Ronettes. Oh wow! Um, and Ronnie, I and I, I picked it because this was this was girl harmony mm-hmm. that had existed before them. But this becomes this number one song. It becomes incredibly powerful. And if you 
if you listen to a lot of the stuff that the Beatles did after they Absolutely. heard this song, it had a huge influence on how they, they did a lot of their harmonies. Mm-hmm. So, and, and a good deal of that goes to Phil Spector's production, probably, correct. because that's when he was he was moving from girls into wall of sound type thing, and that was the progression that was happening. And the Beatles started to put more wall of sound behind what they were doing. And they were great. I, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, yeah. it was Ronnie Spector... Oh God! Yeah, uh, they were incredible. fantastic. So that's, I, that I felt was a pivotal song yep. in the changing rock and roll. All right, cool. uh, 1958. You guys are talking Chuck Berry. I got to go there. Johnny Be Good. Um, one of the first songs to really actually put out in words and celebrate the the upside of being a rock and roll star. Talking about the money's going to be good, baby, and all you got to do is be Johnny Be Good. You know, just keep moving forward. Neighbor Jerk. So next one I'm going to talk about, I'm moving into 1969 and Led Zeppelin and Whole lot of Love. Yeah. It, it was a new sound at that point in time. I don't want to call it hard rock, but it was close to it. You know, we called it when I was in high school, because that's when that came out, a couple of years before I graduated. It was acid rock. Acid rock, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, well, I'm going to be on acid to really appreciate it. And we weren't, but a lot of people were. Well, and neighbor Jerry, since you used that, that's that was going to be my next song. Okay. All right. So, so I'm going to. No, I'm, I'm just going to elaborate a little sure, bit more go on. Sure. Um, October of '69. It's the second album, um, and I, I really thought hard on like Dazed and Confused from the first album, but I think I, I was watching a documentary uh, not long ago, and it was it was Jack White. Yeah, and you know the one I'm talking about. It's uh, gonna get it's gonna get louder. It's gonna yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, anyway, that's the guitar guys, right? And yeah. Edge from from U2 and, mm-hmm. and Jimmy yeah. Page, and he starts playing the the opening riff of a Whole Lot of Love, and the other two just take their guitars and put them under their chins <laughs> and lean on it. They it's like we're not touching. We're this. not gonna go there. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have two guys yeah. like that or that are truly innovative, yeah. I thought they were just sending the message. We're not playing. We're this. not gonna. We're not messing yeah. with this because yeah. they were playing along with each other on a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah he started just, that. So it's I just thought really incredible I, to see Jimmy Page do that kind of stuff because he was such a, he was such a famous guy. By the time he got into uh, Led Zeppelin, he right. was a pretty famous guy already. Yeah. He'd done so many session music. He was the Glenn Campbell yeah. of of, of England, really, because Glenn Campbell was in the the Wrecking Crew. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. I'm backing from the 80s back to my top three, but but uh, my number six was, and it's one that uh, neighbor Jerry and I have talked about, was Rumble by Mm -hmm. Link Ray. Yeah, Link Ray. uh, Really, to me, brought the and and most historians brought the the uh, electric guitar effects, the sound that an electric guitar could make. It, It really made it a whole role as a character, trying to intentionally create distortion. And I say intentionally because we'll talk about a song coming up that was given the credit for being the first song with distortion. They just didn't mean for it to happen. But Rumble was the first one that intentionally did it, where Link Ray would poke holes in his in his uh, woofer to to hear what it could hear. When really, I heard that before that he did that, yeah, I, I always wondered how many kids ruined their amplifier. Oh, I wondered too, you know, <laughs> and and probably some of them made a million dollars doing it. Doing but, it, yep. Um, but this this guy and that particular song. Real big influence on Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, the way they play guitar on a stage, among other things, you know, as well as the sound they wanted to make. Um, a lot of people, I don't know if I agree with it, but a lot of people think this is one of the first punk songs, just based on the whole attitude of what the record sounds like. This was the only instrumental song to be banned from AM radio because it was guaranteed to work kids up. It was like in Boston or something where they did that. I can't remember. It was a big city. And that's on the documentary film mm-hmm. that, that yes. you and I have watched yeah. called Rumble. If you ever get a chance, mailman man, Nick, pull that up. I'm checking out. All right. So that was my number six. I'm working down. I don't know where you guys are. So I'm I'm, at, no, I'm my number five. Yeah. That sounds good. Uh, Michael Jackson and Billie Jean from 1970 or 1982. Okay. Off the Thriller album. Um, that was early on MTV days. Absolutely. And, and that album with Thriller and Billie Jean, the videos that came from that, yeah. along with the music, sure. uh, I thought were very impactful. That's a good way to put that. I never even thought about the video side of this, but that was the video that changed the way we watched videos because oh. that was a, a small Broadway musical that was presented to you on film there. And up to that point, 
all you'd seen are these um, surrealistic type videos, you know, where it didn't seem to make much sense visually for what you were hearing, you know, audibly, but this one changed that and it made it kind of a little movie, a little play. And I think a lot of people started saying, yeah, let's make it make more sense. Yeah, they, um, the reason so much of the new wave occurred, and there was a lot of good music in the new wave, um, 79, 80, 81, 82, was that the, the English had been making videos on music that's true. for years. Yeah, that's and right. And they, they would play them on yeah. Top of the Pops and so on. Well, yeah. uh, American bands weren't doing that. And yeah. so when MTV launched, they just played whatever they had for programming, and it was British. And so they inadvertently created the wave. Is that right? I didn't off realize of, that. Off That's of the cool. videos that the British had already <laughs> in the can. Just like what you were saying, Billy Bob, is that that influence, um, you know, came yeah. out of uh, a need for visual art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally different. And Michael Jackson just had that that look. So that's a good one, so, neighbor okay. Jerry. So back to Mailman Mitt. All right, number five on my list, August 1964. Now, I know, Billy Bob, you said something about it, and, I, and Neighbor Jerry, you might have said even this name earlier, but uh, I put, uh, I really I really got you now, the Kinks. The Kinks, yeah, um, I was talking about them just a little bit ago. The Kinks are one of those bands that and always I, brought us back You'll to probably the, talk about this, but I think that could be in the conversation of first punk bands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Always brought us back to the edge, and you're going to hear me say that a little bit later. Okay. And I think they were the... They were the reminder, even though when you look at that, this is what, uh, 64. So this is, this is about seven, eight years after Elvis first yeah. became Elvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And already we needed to be reminded what rock and roll music is supposed to be. The kinks just, and they never stopped there. They just kept going and going and going with something different, something different. So, I mean, all the way up to and beyond, but Lola, I mean, I was just like, really? Mm-hmm. How could that song ever be on my airwave as a, 19 year old kid or 18 year old kid you know but my god i love that song that's a great song all right so i'm moving on you're number five my I'm number do five. My four. okay do five. all right i'm gonna do my five and uh i'm going back to 1958 again true love ways by buddy holly because it was like the first rock song to use a complete string arrangement for the intention of using a complete string arrangement from that point forward, people heard music differently because it sounded more like, I don't know if it was Broadway necessarily, but it sounded more theatrical, let's put sure. it that way. And people were liking to hear that music whether they knew it or not in the theater. So. Well, don't you think, I mean, what a band, like a song like that did yeah. was not necessarily what the Eagles did in, with Hotel California where they're softening the edges, but rock, and, and in his case, you know, West Texas rockabilly mm-hmm. was was crude and, and i don't mean crude as in insulting crude but it was just a rough and and by taking a little bit he's creating an mm-hmm. appeal to a bigger audience mm-hmm. and that's okay and yeah i, I think that totally okay idea. um you know the crickets were one guitar one bass and and a, and a drum kit and then eventually they added another guitar in before he died just before he died and so it was one of the first ones that really had that complete, what we call the general setup for a rock band. A couple of guitars, a bass, and drums. You know, sometimes there's keyboards, sometimes there's this, sometimes there's that. But that's what it was. So, I mean, he was just so innovative in so many different ways. This is one of those reflections of that particular song. Well, I knew, I, ways. I knew we could count on you bringing in a Buddy Holly song. No, uh, you'd, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? I, I had a, a strong sense that would happen. Well, let's just see what your next one is there. So my number four is by Prince from 1984. Oh, cool. When Dove Cries. Uh, Purple Rain album. Purple Rain album. Uh, I'm not sure that that was Prince's first hit. It might have been. I don't think it was his first hit. I don't think so. But but the album was was massive. Yes. It it was total success. Um, And how that changed the direction was... Prince's approach to music. It was unique. The sounds that he produced on that hadn't been put together before in that format. Oh, that was just, he was such a genius. So that would be my uh, number four. So cool. Mailman Mick, what do you got? Well, guys, We're August here. 1966, Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles. Oh, and unique cut. I picked this 
it, it might seem it's kind of hidden when you think of all the things, even at that point in time, because 66 is only a couple of years after they've been, you know, lining up the top five and right, you know, right, right. each one taking its turn at being number one. The reason I picked Tomorrow Never Knows as a pivot song is because it is identified as being the first psychedelic song. Oh, very cool. And so from that comes the Grateful Dead and Airplane and all these different, you know, California bands. Which album is that off of? Uh, Sergeant Pepper? It's e- no, it's either Revolver or Revolver. Rubber Soul. I think it's 66, Revolver. Oh, you said? Yeah, it 66. Right. It could be okay. Rubber Soul. That it's one 66. of the two. Which Rubber Soul and Revolver are really like a, a double album. I mean, really, when you look at it. They kind of are, aren't they? They yeah. just wouldn't market it that way. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, we're ready to crack the top three. So in the top three, I will be the first one to kick it out here. And it kind of it, it piggybacks off what you were just saying. I took it to the next album, I think. Sgt. Pepper's is the next one. Is the next Revolver. album, and to me, that was, uh, and I'll highlight the song. Will help for my friends. What would you think if I sang a song favorite song off the album but uh to me that's that's where i was picking up the psychological or the uh psychedelic music uh and because the whole album has some element to that but it, it started it kickstarted with the song you were just talking about but um this is so this is 66 does that sound right uh i think 67 would have 67 is when it came Sergeant out Pepper, right? okay came out yeah, summer of love yeah 67 uh oh but here's what I was trying to say. Uh, 66 is the last year uh, that singles outsold albums. And starting in 67. The albums, Beatles changed everything. The Beatles yeah. changed everything yeah. because yeah. albums, people started picking up albums because of concept albums. Yep. And, and what, what, what's the story going to be on this? And, so that, and Zeppelin followed r- yes. right with it. They never released a single. Right. Oh, ever. I didn't, that didn't even, I never, never even heard that before. Well, and you mentioned the... The psychedelic of right. Sergeant Pepper, just the visual of holding that yeah, album just in the, your hands. Well, we talked about artwork. Yeah, all that the year. stuff that was going on on that album. That's just, that's incredible. Um, it's the beginning of rock as an art form. That's what I wrote down here. Uh, not just a musical experience because of that. You know, the way you look at it, the visuality of the album covers and the images that the songs are making, and you're you're, you're seeing a video of some sort in your head before videos are over there. Uh, the, the music moves from all types of one station. You know, if we're talking radio here, it could be it could be under pop, it could be under rock, it could be under. There's some country stuff there. It could flip into that whole thing. So, uh, and, and this is the song that influenced Brian Wilson to create Pet Sounds, yep. which is in and of itself another one that kind of um, promotes progressive rock. I mean, Pet Sounds is one of those that King Crimson and some of those guys would have called influencers. So that was my number three. I'll, I'll use uh, a little help from my friends because to me that's my favorite song on the album and I think it kind of represents it. Great so, song. Yeah. Moving on. What's your number three? So my number three, I'm going to go back to what I started off early on in, in the recording session today. Uh, Uh-oh. Harmonies at horns. Okay. Well, I haven't talked about the horns, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about horns. Groups like uh, Chicago. Yeah. 1969, the Chicago Transit Authority album with uh, anyone really knows who, what time Man, it is. Good stuff. Um, Blood, sweat, I, and tears. Yep. Well, Uh-oh. don't rush me. <laughs> Ides of March, 1970, and vehicle. Yeah, baby. Lots of, lots of horns. But you mentioned Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. And, and that's who I was going to talk about. Spinning Wheel. Oh, very cool. From 1968. Very cool. The introduction of, I mean, there were, other bands had horns in them, but not prominently. And... Blood, Sweat, and Tears in 68 was a new introduction of a, another layer or a new sound in the music. They and, brought it very much for the uh, What goes up must
Red pony, let the spinning wheel spin. You got no money and you, you got no home. Spinning wheel all alone. Talking about your troubles and you, you never learn. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel turn. Did you find the directing sign on the straight and of the direction of rock and roll. I do too. Anything to say about that? Yeah, I I mean when you when you talk about Chicago, that was I struggled and struggled as I put this list together, uh, neighbor Jerry, in not putting a Chicago song on there because when you think about their body of work, it's it's unbelievable. Massive. Um, and so uh, I, I didn't end up grabbing one, but you can't ig- ignore the influence of the horns in yeah. rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and that's why when I talked about Chicago and, and uh, the Ides of March, even though they, they may not have been the first, but their music is very strong and very, yeah. well, and very go, powerful. And if you go to, I mean, Terry Kath arguably is one of the greatest guitar players ever. Which is incredible for the band that he played in. And, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. you don't really think of Chicago as being a guitar no, band. No, but when you listen to his solos before he died, man, that was incredible stuff. So, Milkman, what do you got? Now it's your number three. Alright, number three, December 1979, London Calling by the Cla- <gasps> Clash. Bless your heart, I didn't get to choose that. But I <laughs> and, wanted to. And what I put it in is, you know, a theme that I kind of ran through some of this is is the idea of taking us back to where rock and roll is supposed to be. I mean, rock and roll is not supposed to be mainstream. No, it's it supposed be. to be dangerous. It's supposed to be out there on the edge. And, <laughs> and I think what it. The Clash tried to do is say, and, and yet still create and produce a, an attractive record, was basically saying, okay, um, you know, screw you, Disco, screw you, Eagles, screw you. I mean, I, I think that yeah. was part of it. It's like they wanted people who could who wanted to play music not to have to go into a studio and overdub 75 and tracks. That, yeah, that's And that's crazy. what it was about. And I think it was a it was a good movement back the other way. That whole album of London Calling is so good. Number two for me, I'll you. move into 1965, Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone baby, that changes everything because it kind of turns its back on folk music, which is where they had placed Dylan, and they want him to stay there. Uh, he's he's one of the first ones to head into electric rock. He's not the first, but. He's one the first one to make a lot of money with it. Let's put it that way. I'm going to jump in with you. Go ahead. Because that was one of my top two. Oh, so okay. I can, it doesn't yeah, matter. Talk we're about so it. close together. Sure. Yeah. Um, again, you said 65. 
And, and it is from this that Lennon and McCartney's lyrics begin to change. Yes, exactly. I know right. they had a meeting with him and the whole the old story about getting together and smoking pot and all yep, that. Yep, yep. But uh, in, in a nutshell, Dylan said to, to Lennon, you write interesting songs, but your lyrics are ridiculously yeah. not inter- not important. Yeah. And it I don't know if it insulted Lennon, but his objective then was to write songs where the lyrics actually matter. Yeah. So, I, you know, talk about an influence. And so that... <laughs> That's that's what Jerry and I would have talked about probably when we were talking about uh, lyric, great lyricists in our first in episode 4.1, 4.2, Yes. and how I can listen to Lennon all day long and there's only a handful of McCartney songs that I can listen right. to before I'm like, but when they're together, it's magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's that's that's a really good point. So yeah, like a Rolling Stone, uh, so many things that it changes. Um, it's just a really unique style of electric guitar stuff that he puts in here with uh, Mike Bloomfield. That's the first time he puts Bloomfield on a, on a record. And it just happened to be that Bloomfield's friend, Al Cooper, shows up, sits down at a, at a, at a Hammond organ that he only knows the very basics of, and nobody knows enough to tell him to get up and leave. And he's the one that brings in those heavy, heavy Hammond B3 chords a half beat after they should be there. And because of that, Dylan just said, I love that sound, and that, that song's the way it is. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, through the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all. Kidding you You used to Laugh about Everybody that was Hanging out Now you don't Talk so loud Now you don't Seem so proud About having to be Scrounging Your neck It was he first... wasn't even really a, a organ player, right? No, he wasn't at all. He was a, more of a guitar player, a yeah. keyboard player, but not necessarily an organ player. But, uh, yeah, he just kind of snuck into the – he had a friend that was running the session, and he, so he got in, and he knew Bloomfield a little bit. And so he sat down and was playing during one of the breaks, and, uh, and, and somebody realized he shouldn't be doing that. Like, and Dylan said, no, that sounds good. Let him go ahead. You know, and so he did, and that became history. The rest but, is history. Uh, so – Back to me, my number two is the Beach Boys uh, from 1962, Surfing Safari. Uh, once again, I'll go back to harmonies. Yeah, uh, yep. Let's go surfing now, everybody's learning how. Come on a safari with me. Come on a safari with me. Early in the morning, we'll be starting out. Some honeys will be coming along. We're loading up our woody with our boards inside and heading out singing our song. beginning of the Beach Boys sound yeah and it was something new for the California scene yeah. and uh, I love it and that that whole thing it's got several generations it's probably a topic of its own to be talked about but as time has it we need to keep moving on so mailman Mick number two all right number two on my list I don't have the year uh, it's probably 65 um, John Lennon's favorite Beatles song help I need somebody not just anybody Help. You know I need someone Help. When, when I was younger when So I was much younger, younger than today I never needed, I never needed 
this song not just because it's Lennon's favorite but I see that this as being the the movement from the early Beatles stuff that was very very 50s influenced to this the 66 67 stuff that became the 60s Beatles yeah. influence wow that's... and and it led them out of their touring years into their yeah. into their studio years oh and yeah exactly that became the 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 really good stuff started coming out of them too then all right, I gotta get going here. Rocket 88, 1951. A guy named Jackie Brinston was a sax player, kind of put together a little song called Rocket 88. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style. as a single, very popular among the RMV audiences of that time. Turns out it was actually Ike Turner and his Kings, his band, of which Jackie Brexton was a saxophone player, who had put together the, the better part of the arrangement of this song. But it's Ike Turner singing and everything on the 45, he just never got the credit for it. Uh, Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm. Uh, before, this is just before Tina joins the band and they move off in a different direction. It was the first distorted guitar song. Now, I talked about Rumble being a distorted guitar song. That was intentional. They poked holes. This is when the amp got dropped outside. It's the first time, and Sam Phelps was recording this, and they said, you know, that's too bad, man. The amp's not right. We'll come back and do it tomorrow. He goes, no, no, I like the song. I like the sound of that with the distorted amp because they busted one of the woofers. This is often called the first rock and roll song, and honest to God, there's no such thing as the first rock and roll probably the first anything really um but it was really borrowed heavily on the sound of uh what the old jump bands used to be in the r&b section of uh of music back in the 30s and 40s uh it's based a lot on a song called cadillac boogie by jimmy liggins rocket 88 pretty famous song jimmy breston your number one my right? number one thank you so my number one jerry i'm gonna go with jimmy hendrix because I thought somebody, I really thought we would all have Jimi Hendrix on our list somewhere. But anyway, so Purple Haze, 1967. I like the choice. Are you experienced, LP? sound it was hard rock it was into psychedelics and at that point in time that was new and he was and he was he was borrowing a little bit off the blues influence of uh, extended note type yes. and things like that he had a, had a pretty steep history as a, as a friend of the blues let's put it yes. that way I guess so. and and as we sat down earlier today, Lindsay behind the bar, yeah. when she we told her the topic, <laughs> what did she say? Jimi Hendrix and Woodstock. The Star Spangled Banner. The Star Spangled Banner. Which I think may lead into 
Well, I don't know if I got the same one you were thinking about. Oh, okay. I thought she was talking to you earlier and had said, Star Spangled. I thought you had oh, told yeah, her Oh, yeah, yeah, we did. We were talking okay. about, you know, the interesting thing about that, too, is Hendrix had, had hit, had begun to hit in England, but he hadn't hit in the United States. Yeah. Yes. And he Relative was given the very worst slot. Sunday morning, the last day of the concert, it, it, 6 a.m. That wasn't the slot he was supposed to have. That's where he ended up playing ended up because playing. Yeah. they just they just kept pushing everything back overnight, and so he ended up that time. What a way to wake up, right? But isn't that the most incredible version <laughs> of that song ever? Anyway, go ahead. You were going to go on to a different direction. Okay, no. Uh, You're number one. My number one, and I go back and I think about the Kinks, um, Elvis hitting us with Jailhouse Rock, uh, Dylan with his lyrics on, you know, like a Rolling Stone. Um, my number one, September of 1991, because where rock and roll had drifted to, this band was like, no, we're going to bring you back. Um, smells like Teen Spirit, Nirvana. There, I was hoping you'd go there. <laughs> and it, and I don't know anything about fa- grunge. It, it is not my favorite Nirvana song, um, but I think it may well have been the 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 call back to yeah. what rock and roll was supposed to be yeah. maybe launching thousands of garage bands as we talked about earlier it may have also ended an era where somebody needs to be the new kinks yeah okay i love that and i hope someplace out there my friend rod's listening to this because this is the episode you should have been on too because you would have been talking about those guys all day long so that's really cool you know what i love about this episode we've covered a lot of territory here yes we did and there's so many so many different directions that rock and roll could have gone and did go. Well, and I look forward to this playlist because there's oh. a ton of great music yeah. that we've talked about today. Yeah, so this is this will be a, this will be one that Spotify will say that's a lot of songs, but we're gonna love it because we can listen to it. Exactly. Right. So I just want to say thank you to our friend Mailman Mick for being here today. Did you have a good time? It's been my pleasure. Thank uh, you, John. We enjoyed it. Got it from a whole different perspective. Why don't you say so long, neighbor Jerry? So long, neighbor Jerry. This is Billy Bob Jumpbag Jr. It's going to be a long episode. I hope you got a long drive ahead of you. Thanks a lot. Be safe out there. Congratulations. If you've made it this far, you are officially promoted to the status of loyal listener. You've been listening to episode number 34 of Three Drinks In, a musical podcast about whatever sneaks past our spiritual gatekeepers once we have entertained our third beverage. This episode was recorded on June 24th, 2022 at our usual hangout. For some unexplained reason, the folks at Iowa Taproom love us and we love them for taking such good care of us. We would like to thank Tim and his great staff for showering upon us their knowledge of good beer and their careful consideration of our various needs. They are truly good people. As is our custom, our guest hosts are required to find their own path towards the intersection of wisdom and truth. 
Today, Mailman Mick found his by swimming through a couple of well-made vodka lemonades, and the taproom crew didn't let him down. As for neighbor Jerry and myself, well, it was another stroll down the old Iowa brewery lane. Jerry started off with the Neon Hazy from Barntown and Clive. I opened up with Two Hop Shakur from the 1717 Brewery in downtown Des Moines. Round two, both Jerry and I went with Strength of the Mind from Stomp Box Brewer in Davenport. It's a tasty hazy with some Simcoe hops mixed in with the Mosaic and Citra to bring it to life. We finished the day with our Big Grove Easy Eddie finale, which has become a bit of a custom for these podcasts. In closing today, we will turn to a thought that was posted anonymously to one of our occasionally visited online sites. And that posting reads, Thank you, craft brewers, for making my drinking problem seem like a neat hobby. (laughs) Now get out there and enjoy that hobby. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Three Drinks In. Our intro and outro music is a wonderful tune called Drink Beer Till the Day That I Die by Daisy May, a terrific group from France. Their song was found at the Free Music Archive. That's freemusicarchive.org. And the band Daisy May can be found on the web at daisymay.com. That's D-A-Z-I-E-M-A-E.com. We thank them for making their music available. Tell me, dear, what it is to you Will you come home and help me live this blue But if you don't, I'll dream Till the day that I die